1: The study of fungi has lagged behind other biological scientific studies for a few reasons. First of all, mushrooms and fungi tend to grow on dead or decaying plants and animals, so they had psychological ties to the afterworld, and in some religions were even considered to be evil. Second, understanding spores and how mold works became much easier to do once the microscope was invented. Before this time, though a few early scientists observed spores, popular conjecture indicated that fungi spontaneously generated from the air or from the decayed juices of once-living things. Mapping all the different types of mushrooms and fungi is one of the most active areas of biology today because scientific study of this group of living organisms is a few centuries behind plant and animal kingdoms. So until relatively recently, an air of mystery surrounded fungi, including fungi in vineyards, such as Botrytis cinerea. Botrytis cinerea comes from the Latin words grapes like ashes, and having some of it in the vineyard can be a blessing or a curse depending on how it affects your grapes. If we hone in on Austrian dessert wines, there is evidence that an early Botrytis wine was made in Bergenland since at least 1526. It was likely a Trockenbier in Alsace, and a sale of the wine was recorded in 1653 when Prince Esterhazy purchased a container which was slowly enjoyed for the following two centuries. This noble sweet wine dating to 1526 predates origin legends for Botrytis wines in Hungary, Germany, and Bordeaux, which all attribute the origin of Botrytis-style wines to accidental late harvests in later centuries. Could the first Botrytis wines in the world have been made in Bergenland? Could Bergenland attribute its first Botrytis wines to accidental late harvests, like the other origin stories around the world? Or has Botrytis been a much more integral part of purposeful winemaking since the 16th century? In Bergenland, the Siewinkel subregion is especially good for sweet wines because of its unique wetlands. In the fall, shallow Lake Neusiedel casts a fog Vineyards creep to the edges of the wetlands and soak in the fog until intense sunshine burns it off. The fog encourages botrytis, and the sunlight helps the grapes to ripen while keeping botrytis in check. These unique conditions make the area perfect for producing noble Birnausleizen and Trockenbiernausleizen. Birnausleizen translates to berry-out harvest and refers to the harvest of individual ripe berries. Trockenberry Naslaise translates to dried berry out harvest and refers to the harvest of individual dried berries. Botrytis or noble rot helps to draw moisture from the grape, further concentrating the sugars, and it also gives the wine a unique flavor. Some of the world's most sought-after dessert wines come from Austria's Bergenland. Stay tuned to hear how one producer has brought Austrian dessert wines to the far corners of the world over the course of three generations.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset, at OffsetPartners.com. That's O F F S E T. S E T. Partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Gerhard Kracher from Austria on the show. Wonderful to see you again. Wonderful seeing you again. So, your dad was one of my big heroes, and he had a lot to do with kind of connections and the modern Austrian wine story in terms of distribution in this country and also getting the growers together. But I think you know that story a lot better than me, and I was curious what your memory of your dad is.
2: Well, our winery started already with my grandfather, and uh, he started right after World War II with a mixed farming place, which was uh, self sufficient because uh, we were at the most eastern part of Austria. Five minutes by car from us was the Iron Curtain. So it was not a place where people really went to. And my grandfather always had the had dream to be a winemaker. And uh, it took him until 1959 to restructure the mixed farming place, the self-sufficient place, into a winery. And at this period of time, this was very unusual in our village, that someone is concentrating only on one thing. And what he also did was uh, starting to bottle under his own brand because normally everything was sold by bulk in the barrel. And he started to believe in the area. He saw the potential of the area by using the botrytis, which is very unique. And my father was born in 1959, so he grew up in the winery. And um, in the beginning, the winery was very small, so he couldn't feed two families. So my father was from the beginning of the 80s, he was a part-time winemaker. He was uh, in the pharmacy industry and was driving to Vienna every day, had his regular job, and uh, during his spare time, he took care on the winery and uh, started to travel around the world to inform himself about markets, about what's going on in other winemaking areas, went to wine fairs, and uh, he always said to me that in the 80s, it was going on wine fairs was sometimes a disaster for him because no one was interested in Austrian wines, especially not in sweet wines, no one knew him, so he couldn't get the people to taste the wine. So it was a very tough time. He said the first couple of times when he went to Win Expo or London Wine Trade Fair, it was a waste of money because he couldn't get the right people to taste it. So end of the 80s, he organized a tasting in uh, London. And all of his friends said, hey, Alice, it's a waste of money. What are you doing? The people you're inviting, they will not come. They don't know you. So what he did is he went to a wine shop. He bought five different vintages of Chateau de Dicam, which uh, was and this the most famous sweet wine uh, producer in the world. And um, he selected the vintages for sure very carefully and showed the same from Kracher On the invitation, he wrote very big, big Chateau de Dicam tasting and very little and Kraja. So everyone showed up and uh, he served wine by wine blind, side by side, the same vintages. And he selected really carefully, so uh, every vintage was won by us. And this was the first time when we were an international press. And right after that, we found distribution in several countries in Europe and from 92 on uh, in the United States. So he made it for unknown wine country, he made it quite fast. And uh, he never gave up his ideas and he always believed in the quality uh what can be done in our country.
0: Your place of residence at the winery is at the Bergenland. Yes. And what is that area like, and specifically, where are you in there? Well, uh, we are southeast of Vienna
2: on the Hungarian border. It's about one hour drive from Vienna. And uh, we live in Bergenland, and the subregion is called the Sevinke. We are living in the middle of a national park, uh, which main part is the Lake Neusiedlersee, which is a big, shallow lake. And uh, it's 36 kilometers long, 3 kilometers wide, and just 1 meter, 80 centimeters deep. So I can walk through very easy. And this makes most part of our microclimate. Plus, what makes our small village, we only have 2,500 people there, what makes our village so special by microclimate's point of view is that we have about 20 small, shallow lakes around our village and in between our vineyards. And with uh, shallow, I mean between 20 to maximum 50 centimeters. And sometimes in summer, when we have a dry period, they dry completely out. Plus, in this national park, we have a lot of plots which are not planted. So these plots are mostly a little deeper, so too humid to plant vineyards anyways. And again, more humidity. And that's how our special microclimate works to let the potritis and noble rod grow in Indian summer like in October we have every morning we have a little bit of fog in the vineyards and as we are totally flat because sometimes the fog is very extreme so the sun can bring it away and as we are totally flat the wind brings that out in the morning and then we have a clear sunshiny day and that's the perfect combination for the potritis to grow so what different sweet
0: wines do you make? It seems like there's quite a few in different lines, different grape varieties and different must-weights. How do you classify them up, and what is the scope of the winery production today?
2: By uh, Austrian uh, wine law, which is the same as the German wine law, we have the classification on sugar level at harvest time, on concentration at harvest time. So for the sweet wine, trockenbeerenauslese means translated dry berry selection. And that means this is only the highest concentrated berries. where barely no juice is inside anymore. And this is the highest concentration level. And there it can go up to 400, even 450 grams of fresh sugar. And uh, this highest level, we can produce every vintage, which makes our area even more special. Because uh, there are a lot of, uh, actually some areas where you can produce this wine. It's Actually, it's four. It's uh, the Mosley in Germany, it's Sauternes in France, it's Tokai in Hungary, and it's in Burgenland at the Lake Neusiedlersee, where I'm coming from. And in our place, since my father started to be more a winemaker than a mixed farmer, which was in the early 50s, there has never been a vintage where there was no Trockenbeerenauslese. That makes our place very, very unique. And uh, we have another big advantage. The Lake Neusiedlersee and also the small lakes they have a very high content of minerality and saltiness for sweet water and a couple of thousand years ago the lake was 10 times bigger as now and over the years thousands it moved back very slowly so it left all this minerality and saltiness in the soil and the plant takes everything from the soil and gives it to the fruit. And if I've done my job uh, right, it's also showing you the wine. So there's some extra. You know, our wines uh, have always a lot of elegance. Even if they have 300 grams of sugar or more, there's always a certain elegance. Because not only the acidity and the alcohol is fighting with the sugar level, there's also this mineralic components, this saltiness in the bag. And this makes these wines more interesting, more drinkable, more elegant.
0: And your father was a big film fan, and he named one of the lines after a certain kind of film. How did he determine what to bottle as what? It was an investigation for about
2: nearly 10 years. He started to work in the winery already when he was 16, and uh, just to help my grandfather. But uh, from the age of 21 or 22, he started to investigate different techniques, which style fits better to which variety. Especially in the end of the 70s and 80s, he experimented a lot with uh, barrique barrel fermentation and aging for sweet wines, and uh, this style was absolutely not known in our area. People said in Austria that the style of uh, barrique barrel fermentation and aging is a mistake, and for sweet wine it should be forbidden. And uh, at this period, when he tried these things out, he was watching the movie series Nouvelle Vague from France, and he was a very big fan of it. It was a movie series which was criticizing uh, people who walk around the world with uh, not open eyes, who are not open for new things. And he dedicated the barrique barrel fermentation and aged wines to these people and called this lineup Nouvelle Vague. And over the 10 years' investigation, he found out that some varieties are better to ferment and age in barrique barrels and some varieties are better to ferment and age in stainless steel or in big old used casks. And for the Nouvelle Vague style, for the Barrique Barrel style, we do nowadays the same system as as he did at the beginning of the 80s. It's varieties where we think that the secondary aromatics through micro-oxygenation, through the Barrel, has to come in front. This is varieties like the Chardonnay, like Red, TBAs, or like Tramina. and the other style, the more... Classical style, let's say it that way, whereas no use of boric barrel, only use of old big cask, which means 1,200 1, and 1,500 liters, or stainless steel. These are varieties of, we think, that the secondary aromatic has to be in the front. These are varieties like the Musketa Tunnel, like Scheurebe, or like Walshriesling. So these are the two styles we are doing on our collection wines. Our collection wines are all trockenbeerenauslese. These are the wines which are labeled with a gold label and they have a number on it because we have all these different varieties plus sometimes from one variety two or three wines within a vintage, which is not really our target. Our target is always to get the optimum wine from one variety in one vintage. But sometimes you have two different lots which are both fantastic on their own. And then you think, okay, if I plant them, That will be the ultimate wine. And then you try it and uh, the positive aspects of both wines are hidden by the other. And it's uh, a more normal wine then. So sometimes we leave that alone and we can also show that way what's possible within a vintage with the same variety just having made two different selections or having harvested from two different soil types. So... That's why we're doing this collection, this numbered wines. And uh, my father started to do this in '95 because this vintage was, people say, the best he ever made, which is actually true also from my side. Uh, There he had 15 different wines, and uh, he thought about how will the consumer know what's the difference. So I said, okay, I numbered them by concentration from 1 up to 15. and. We kept going on like this. I mean, every year, the number of wines is different because so we're working with nature, so we never know. So nature decides how many numbers it is. For example, in uh, 2010, we made 11 different numbers. In 2003, only one, because it was so hot and dry that we didn't get enough botrytis. So it was very hard to come up to the, this high concentration. But even in this vintage, we were able to produce a Trockenbienauslis. And the number system is... The higher the number, the higher the concentration. does not mean the better the wine. That's everyone's own decision. And within the collection, it's all single-variety wines, except one, which is called the Grand Cuvée, which is a blend of Chardonnay and Riesling. And we love to do this blend because these two varieties make for us the perfect harmony. And the Grand Cuvée is always something like our flagship Not because it's the best out of the collection. That's everyone's own decision. It's more because it shows best the vintage, the winery, and the region in our personal point of view. Like every restaurant has its signature dish. This is our signature wine.
0: Let's talk a little bit about those individual grape varieties and what they're like to grow, what they're like to handle, and then how they age. Tell me a little bit about Welsh Riesling.
2: Well, Welsh Riesling is the main variety in our area for the sweet wine production. In our winery, it's a little bit more than 50% of our land is planted with this variety. Valsch Riesling has nothing to do with the Riesling, with the Rhine Riesling from Germany. Valsch Riesling is a variety which has always been in our area. It's a little bit known in uh, northern Italy as Riesling Italico. and some of the eastern countries uh, next to our borders, like Slovakia or Czech Republic, there are also some plantations. And no one Really knew where it came from, and uh, we still don't really know. And as the leaves and the berries, people say kind of look like Riesling. I never found that really, but uh, Welsh means the unknown. So they called it the unknown Riesling because uh, we don't know where it comes from. And uh, I always have to say it tastes wonderful for an unknown grape variety.
0: (laughs) How does it grow in the vineyard? What's it like to handle? Doesn't need really special
2: treatment, especially on the on the old vineyards, which means fifty to sixty years old. In in our case, the yield goes down very much, but the taste is. I mean, it's like with every grape variety. The taste is phenomenal. Then with younger plantations, Valshriesling tends to carry a lot of grapes, so we always have to lower the yields a little bit before ripening comes. But this variety fits perfect to our soil types. I mean, basically we have two soil types. Actually, only two crews in our winery. One crew is at the end of the lake at the moment, which is totally sandy soil. It looks like on the beach, and the sand is gray. So there are the influences that during the day when it's sunny, the the sand is totally hot. So you get a very nice ripeness in that. But as soon as the sun is gone, the sand is totally cold. So I always keep a lot of freshness. And Welsh Riesling tends in most of the vintages to be better on sandy soil. Our second cutter is about four to five kilometers away from the lake. But this was the end of the lake until uh, 2,000 years ago and stayed there for a couple of hundred years. And um, this is more gravelly soil and dark soil. And you know with gravel, It absorbs the energy the whole day from the sun and gives it back a couple of hours at night. So the tastes of the two crews, even if they're only five kilometers away, is like it would be two totally different areas. And uh, my grandfather already saw the advantage of these two crews. Uh, When he started uh, to make his plantations, he concentrated first on these two crews only because they were a little higher. I told before our area is totally flat. But there's no mountains. I mean, it's uh, one meter to five meters higher than the rest. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was always a danger of uh, spring frost. And as frost goes a little bit more down, he was a little safer there. But over the decades, my father and him found out that there is more minerality and more saltiness in these two crews because as the one which is five kilometers away now with the gravelly soil, was for a couple of hundred years the end of the lake. So the lake was always bringing more and more to that. And also at the end of the lake now. So we have a big advantage with this two crews in terms of the saltiness in the final wine.
0: And how does that Welsh Riesling evolve in terms of flavors in the bottle over time? At what stages does it tend to change looking back over decades?
2: Well, the, the first 10 to 15 years, you have this more primary aromatic style, like this uh, quince aromas, uh, stone fruit, yellow ripe apple in the nose. And uh, in the mouth, it's more like honey melon, peach flavors, and it always tends to have an extreme saltiness in the back, extreme minerality, spicy. Sometimes you, it feels like in your mouth that you have like change of candy on your tongue and after, depends on the vintage, after 10 to 15 years, this primary aroma is a little in the back. And then you have more like fresh apricot flavors in the beginning, also in the smell and also in your mouth. And uh, it's more than not fresh peach anymore, it's more like cooked peach or cooked quince. And that's the second stage. And then after 20, 25 years, depends again on the vintage. Smells and tastes on, uh, like dried apricot, dried, a little bit like dried papaya. So a little milk caramel, more going into the second aromatic. There are very light tea aromatics in the back, which is hiding down the residual sugar. So by taste, you think the sugar level goes back, that it's losing sugar level, but it's not in truth. And then there is the next stage, when the wines are 25, 30 years or older. So it goes into a little darker caramel. The smell with the apricot, with the dried apricot, stays. It gets a little more intense. You have a little more tea aromatic, black tea aromatic. And uh, the wine finishes totally dry, salty, and mineralic. I mean, these wines aging uh, can age forever. I just had recently a 1976 from our house, and uh, it was still a, a beautiful wine. In the first stage, I thought, oh, this will be not that good anymore, because it, at this time, there w- we had a big problem getting uh, proper corks. So the filling niveau was very bad, and the wine looked nearly black, oxidized. But it was only the color. The taste was amazing. So this wine, um, I'm always asked, how, how long can these wines age? And I always say they will survive us all. Well.
0: What different foods would you pair with a Welsh Riesling TBA over the course of those years of development? I mean, I, obviously, I know that you do different bottling numbers. there, But to overgeneralize, during the first five to ten years, what might you serve it with? And then later on, what might you serve it with at the table? The the first years, I would I personally prefer
2: fruit tarts with it, New York cheesecake, <laughs> one of my favorite dishes. <laughs> Lucky for us, yes. <laughs> Just had a uh, two actually yesterday.
0: <laughs> that's not actually illegal in some states. So yeah, it's only in New York. But get away <laughs> Perfect.
2: That. That's, <laughs> no, that's uh, that that fits very very much. I mean, it's more fresh dessert in the first stage, and uh, in the second stage, I would go on to. Something like creme brulee, which fits wonderful to it. And then in the third stage, I would go like apple pie. Fits fantastic because you have this dry apricot flavors and the wine. And then with a uh, fresh, warm apple pie, a little bit uh, caramelized on top. That's fantastic with it. In the last stage, I would go to dark chocolate which fits fantastic. All dark chocolate desserts like French dark chocolate tart, which is a, quite a heavy dish, but uh, fits phenomenal to this wine. Or what I love to do with these wines is have it to a cigar.
0: What about Schweirebe? How is that different as a grape variety? Well, Schweirebe
2: was brought to us in the 50s. And uh, my grandfather was one of the first in the area to plant this. And he found very fast out that this variety is... Uh, great for making sweet wines because, uh, with the it tends to get this uh, tropical fruit flavors. It tends to have a little higher acidity than all the other varieties we are having. That's a really refreshing character. And, uh, to me, Scheuerbe is always a variety which is best the first 10 to 15 years. And then again, after 25, 30 years, because then in the mid stage, You have just slightly this primary aromatic, but no real secondary aromatic. And it's not as charming as in the first 10 to 15 years. And then it's again fantastic after 25, 30 years when the secondary aromas come out. So then you have all these fruit components that you have it like dried or cooked, very concentrated. And then you get the little tea aromatics, which makes a very nice harmony then to this wine.
0: Is Scheurebe less easy or more easy to grow than something like Welsh Riesling?
2: Well, uh, these two varieties kind of fit perfect to our area. And uh, there is never a, a big deal on getting them but right, especially the Scheurebe not, because the Scheurebe has uh, little thinner skins than the Welsh Riesling. And Scheurebe is always one of the first varieties uh, we are picking. It has a little earlier ripeness, while the Welsh Riesling has a very late ripeness. And it's always the last variety we are picking. But uh, in the final stage, the Walsh Riesling is always the wine with more depth, with more ageability.
0: And what about Chardonnay? I think a lot of Americans would think of white Burgundy, the Macon, Chablis, Napa Chardonnay, maybe Australian Chardonnay. But it's not often that we think of it as a dessert wine. How does that handle for you in the Burgenland? and what kind of wine does it make?
2: Well, Chardonnay was always in our area. It was brought by the monks about 180 years ago. So it was always growing in our area, and it fits wonderful uh, more to the gravelly soil than to the sandy soil. And Chardonnay, when it's botrytis, it tends to have this nice citric aromas, very intense. And uh, on the highest concentration, I mean, when it's over 250 grams, there's always like, how do you say, caramelized apple flavor, some... Uh, little coconut flavors, uh, because Chardonnay, we ferment and age in barrel. And through this micro-oxygenation and through the tannins from the barrel, you smell a little like a uh, sweet coconut. It's a very charming wine. It's a little rounder than the Walschriesling and then the Scheuerrewe, but it's very, very nice exotic flavors too. Sometimes you have uh, in some vintage, some uh, back flavor in the back uh, uh, just in the mouse when the wine leaves your, your mouth already, you have some pineapple
0: character. And what about those red dessert wines that you make? We don't see too many red dessert wines in this country, when we think about it, that aren't fortified. What about yours? It's not so
2: easy to make, because it has very sick skins. Uh, we make it from Zweigel, which is the local variety. And uh, as the skins are very sick, uh, it's hard to get them botrytis. So not every vintage I reach the concentration. I mean, I, I reach it in 8 out of 10, which is a lot already. And uh, with the red varieties, with the Zweigelt, I do fermentation, I start the fermentation on the skins to get out a little bit of the color and a little bit of the, of the flavor of the red wine characters, to have a little bit of the tannins. So the first 5 to 10 days depends on the vintage. I leave it on the skins while fermentation starts already, then put the fermenting grapes into the breast. And then I go directly in, uh, to new Baric barrels. For the TBAs, I leave it regularly about 18 to 22 months in the barrel because fermentation takes already eight or nine months. For the BA, I stay in Bernenauslese. I stay in there about uh, 10 to 12 months. And, uh, for the red sweet wines, I mean, the, the perfect dish is uh, always dark chocolate. It's phenomenal. Or for the Berenauslese, I love to serve roasted foie gras and I make some sauce out of blackberries with it and put it over it and then have it with, uh, with the red sweet wine. And That's a, a fantastic combination. Or uh, you can also have it uh, uh, to cigars because the tannins in the back make the cigar a little more flavorable as as i'm not drinking very much hard liquor and i love to smoke cigars i'm always using these wines I, i use old white tba or young red tba for this combination
0: you're a winemaker at a family winery that's been passed down for a few generations and you have a large stock of older wines in your cellar from the winery so it gives you a unique chance to really see how they evolve What have been standout vintages for you since your grandfather's day of wines from the wine And has there been stylistic change beyond the the use of new barrels?
2: The best vintages from my grandfather's time was 69, 76, 79. And his best, he always said, was uh, 81. This was uh, the last vintage when he was the cellar master. Then uh, my father took winemaking over, and 81 was a very special vintage with a lot of botrytis. perfect conditions for uh, botrytis. It was my first vintage, so I have some left of that. And uh, my grandfather gave over to my father in 81, the winemaking part, and concentrated on uh, taking care of the vineyards. Because uh, at this time, my grandfather was only 53 years old, so uh, quite young to give uh, winemaking and give it... uh, to his son, who is uh, at this time 22 years old. And uh, my grandfather always said he saw the potential my father had and he saw that he has a certain feeling in winemaking, in making blends, in uh, seeing uh, what to do in each vintage with a special wine. And he said, okay, he's doing that better than me. I concentrate on the vineyards and give him uh, the cellar Uh, To work in and uh, at this time still the winery was too small and uh, my father was part-time winemaker so when he came back from Vienna at night he went straight into the cellar, checked everything, if everything's good and at this time the winery was only 13 or 14 hectares big and uh, my father went on until 91 being part-time winemaker and uh, as I said from my grandfather 81 was his best vintage and uh, then there came some of the great vintages my father did, like uh, 91 was one of the milestones. And uh, this was the time when he gave up his job and concentrated on winemaking. This was uh, two years after he had the tasting in London and found some distributors in Europe. And it was just before we entered the US market. And at this time he said, okay, now the market is running, Now, and now we can earn enough money to feed the family with our vineyards. And uh, he wasn't 100% true in the beginning because uh, uh, 91 was a fantastic vintage. But then 92 was uh, a bad freezing in spring. So we lost nearly everything uh, by flowering. And uh, then there was nearly no production of TBA. So former times he had the problem that people didn't want to buy the wine. Then he had the problem that he had no wine to sell and people wanted to buy it. And then 93, again, from this frost, the rootstocks were not really recovered. And the vintage was totally dry. So again, nearly no botrytis. So again, no money for us. But then the 94 vintage came, which was a fantastic vintage, which was for sure the best since 81. And then followed by 95, which was by far the best uh, made by my father. This was the first time we made the collection, which was 15 different wines. It was the first time when uh, the American press uh, wrote about these wines. It was Wine Spectator, it was uh, Robert Parker, and then uh, our wines really got to known worldwide with this great vintage of Vintage 95. (laughs) Uh, I remember at this time I was 14 years old when he produced uh, the 95 wines. He was really enthusiastic. The whole harvest and the whole year after watching, fermenting these wines, always tasting. And he said, wow, I've never tasted something in my life like that. And uh, also my grandfather, he always said 95 was a vintage he has never seen. And he has made uh, all vintages from the beginning of the 50s until 2010 when he died. And he always said 95 was just the best he, he has ever seen. And his uh, vintage was uh, kind of the real international breakthrough. And uh, the, the first article, actually, which was written about 95 by a journalist, I uh, can't remember, I think a uh, German area, or Austrian area, he wrote, uh, operation well done, patient dad, because he didn't, he didn't understand how we could make 15 different wines. So it was a very critical article. And my father got really nervous because uh, he had invested so much money in this uh, vintage and uh, uh, so much time and the fort. And it was uh, a very, very big vintage with 15 different wines, so a big volume of wine too. So he was very worried uh, that he can't sell it because uh, you know if you if you read an article about you which says uh, what you've done is uh, not the right way it's uh, doesn't make you that happy but a couple of weeks later the um the parker's chorus and the wine spectators chorus came out and then uh, he was uh, happy again but it costed him before a week of sleepless nights
0: <laughs> let's talk about your dad a little bit he was born in 1959 and he Helped introduce a lot of winemakers in Austria to eventual importers to get their wines into the States. He seemed like someone that was uh, close to the entire Austrian community. What do you remember of him?
2: Well, he was always a very generous guy. And he had the big uh, foresight that if you want to be successful on the market, uh, you can't uh, walk alone. And uh, especially if, if you don't build up the image of Austrian wine, Kracher can never be successful. Having this idea and uh, having great friendships with winemakers from our region, from uh, other different regions, which were all in his age, and uh, started kind of a revolution in winemaking in Austria. And uh, he, he was the first to go really international. And then uh, he took his friends to show their wines internationally too, because uh, walking around alone is not, uh, you know, it, it doesn't create that big image for region for the area for austria and uh, austria has more than only sweet wines you know we have fantastic dry whites we have great reds we have uh, i mean we are a small country but we have a lot of different climates a lot of different microclimates so we are in the lucky position to produce all three types white red and sweet on a very high level and the world should know that
0: Your dad also entered into a collaboration with Manfred Krenkel for the Mr. K wines. How did that come about? And when he later got a 100-point score for one of those wines, what was the effect?
2: They got to know each other in the beginning of the 90s because uh, Manfred had at this time uh, the restaurant Campanile. And uh, they were one of the first customers in California for our wines. And uh, he had the La Brea Bakery. And my father wanted to go to this restaurant and met Manfred there. And immediately they came along very, very well together, started to be very, very good friends. And, uh, on a certain point, it was in 96, I think they decided to try to produce botrytis wines in California, which was not that usual at that time. I mean, there were some who produced, uh, not every year, but sometimes botrytis wine and, uh. Then they started their first vintage with uh, the vintage '98, and it was immediately a big success. And uh, actually, they got so good friends that they loved to visit each other very often, and they uh, loved to eat and drink with each other. So they expanded that project. And uh, I mean, it was never really big because uh, to find the right sites to get botrytis in California was not that easy. So the production was very tiny, but. I mean, uh, they they liked each other so much, and to work uh, together, to make wine together, to have uh, uh, this uh, philosophy of quality level, they both had. They learned so much from each other, and uh, uh, also uh, on the market. I mean, this wine was was a great success, and uh, they loved to do it, and uh, uh, it was a project only by him and by my father, and they continued it until uh, 2007 was the last vintage when my father died.
0: Was it difficult for you, in the wake of your father's early death, to establish who you were to a global community? Well, I I had the big luck that I
2: was working in the winery since I was 18. I started, uh, or actually before 18, when I was uh, 16 or 17. First, uh, it was a lack of money. I told my father when I was uh, 16, you know, I need a little bit uh, more support because uh, I want to go out and I want to have my own car. And he said, well, no problem, we have a lot of work at home. (laughs) And that's how I started, you know. I started to label, uh, work in the vineyard a little bit, clean barrels. And uh, after a certain point, I thought, hey, that's exactly what I want to do. When I was uh, 17, 18, actually, my father gave me five barrels and said, if you want to make a wine, just choose whatever. It can be white wine, red wine, sweet wine, whatever. And I decided to, uh, to make a white wine as my first project. And uh, this was the point when I really fell in love with winemaking. Because uh, when you can see what you can do by yourself, how much you can influence a style to watch how this wine is developing in the barrel and finally bottle it to create something unique. And uh, at this point, I decided I was in economic school. I decided to leave school. And I uh, told my friends at school okay, I'm not coming back. I know what I'm going to do for my life. I want to be a winemaker. When I arrived at home and told this to my parents, uh, they were not that happy, and they had the better arguments, so I went back and finished school. <laughs>
0: Is that true? Because usually it's the other way. Usually, the son says, like, "I'm going to leave the winery and and go be a dancer, and then they're really upset that he's leaving. <laughs> so for you there like...
2: actually, my father always uh, wanted to make it possible for me to study. So uh, after I finished school, I, I studied economics. I didn't really want to, but my father convinced me because he, wanted to study, but uh, our family didn't have the money to send him to university, so he couldn't. So he wanted to give me the chance. He always said to learn something real. <laughs> and uh, um, I was there for one and a half years, and um, the wine sales in Vienna were really good at this time. And then I started to travel internationally for the winery. And uh, after a year traveling, representing, making uh, the harvest together with my father, uh, when the, on the last day of the harvest, uh, at lunchtime, my father said to me, well, I appreciate very much what you've done now for the winery the, the last, uh, months. And it's great that you're so interested in it and you love to make wine. You love to be in the vineyards. You love to work the market. But now it would be time to go back to university to make your final tests for this year. I said, well, uh, I can't go back. He said, why? I said, well, I'm not, uh, uh, inscribed anymore. I'm not, uh, registered anymore. And uh, then we didn't talk for about three weeks, maybe longer. (laughs) But uh, finally, it turned out to be really good that I uh, went down working the winery because uh, a couple of years later, uh, he died. And I think when I would have went on with uh, my studies, I wouldn't uh, uh, be that prepared for for that part.
0: Something that you did entirely on your own accord a bit later was to pair with Aldo Somme to create a project in a different part of Austria. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that came about.
2: Well, I, I met Aldo uh, about 10 years ago. Aldo is Austrian, like me, but uh, we met in New York. And uh, it was one of the first trips in the U.S. Uh, I did for the winery. I was traveling before uh, through Europe and a little Asia, but this was my first or my second trip representing the winery here in the U.S. market. And it was... Uh, quite a long trip. It was more than more than three weeks, I think. And uh, on this trip, I got to know uh, Raj Par from the Michael Mina group and uh, a couple of other great guys, which I uh, still uh, love to go out when I'm here in the US. And uh, on my way back to Europe, my last stop uh, was always New York, because there's a direct flight to Vienna. And uh, I spent four days here and I uh, had a Big tasting with Alexander de Lusalus, uh, Egon Muller, and Istvan Sebschi together. We are uh, together at the Botrytis Forum. And uh, once a year, we are holding uh, this forum to bring the matter of potritis wine back to the people, because it's got it a little unfashionable in recent decades. And uh, this was in uh, a restaurant called Valse, and Aldo was the sommelier there, just arrived, uh, a year early, I think, here in New York, and uh, I walked in uh, a little early and uh, introduced myself, and then we started to talk. And since that, uh, uh, we got really close, close friends, and uh, we were always talking on wine. We were always uh, actually when I was arriving or before I was leaving, we were always going uh, to Queens. We still do that. We go to Queens to a small Thai restaurant. They have no wine list, no wine glasses. We bring everything by ourselves and start to taste, to talk, to eat. Just relax. It's uh, mostly Sunday afternoon, and uh, on a certain point, when we were there, uh, we were talking about Austrian wine, and uh, I always was a big fan of dry Grüner and I said him uh, too. And we were at, at this stage; we were tasting seven or eight different Grüner We were talking about different areas, and. Um, it was uh, it was a lunch which took us more than 10 hours, so we had dinner there too.
0: <laughs> Is that true? You stayed in the same restaurant for 10 hours? We sta-
2: stayed in the same restaurant, keeping on tasting, talking, and uh, I don't know how many wines we finally had, because then some other friends uh, came over with uh, some more bottles, and uh, it was a really relaxing time. And at a certain point, Aldo said, have you ever thought about making Grüner Vettelina? And I said, well, yes, very often, but I, I just found that I have a lack of time, and um, I have to think about how to interpret it and which area. So uh, I was not sure about it. And Aldo said, well, why don't let's do a project together? It can be small. Let's investigate what we can do. And then he said, Gerd, what do you think? What would be the area to go? And I think the Weinviertel. And Aldo's answer was, yes, I also thought about that. Because it's the biggest area of wine grapes of grapes producing, especially for Karina Vitlina, but the most unknown. And there are real hidden treasures. So the next day I flew back home and was thinking about that and investigating a little bit more in the wine fiddler. And I knew the, the the area already, but not that good. So I started to investigate and 10 days later Aldo came and we were driving through the wine and talking to people and uh, looking for sites. And uh, then we found a site, which is uh, South Hill, which is has a lot of chalk, forty-five-year-old rootstocks. And we said, okay, let's try it. And uh, it was not so easy to find the right guy uh, or the right owner. I mean, we had different sites which had this chalkiness, this south side, and old vineyards, and it was not so easy to find the right guy who owns the vineyard and to, who works it with our vision. But in 09 was our first vintage. And it was immediately a big success. It got uh, fantastic ratings. Uh, people loved it. There we made two thousand bottles. Two thousand and ten, the next vintage, was a very difficult vintage because uh, it was all over Austria. Extreme flowering problems, and uh, and especially the area we were. It was it was sixty or sixty five percent lost. So we only had eight hundred bottles after two thousand and ten, and then the eleven. Single vineyard. It's again two thousand bottles so on a normal level, and with this vintage we also introduced a second Grüner Gruner-Bitlina, which is from the same area but from four different crews and which we bottle a little earlier. For the single vineyard, we bottle after eighteen to twenty-two months, depends on the vintage. This is fermented and aged in thousand-liter casks, plus three long-term used barrels, and. For the Adagrino Vetlina, it's more on the primary aromatic side, which means 80% stainless steel tank and a couple of long-term used barrique brawls.
0: If I were to buy those wines and purchase them for my own cellar or for drinking tonight, what should I be thinking about? Should I be opening them right away? Should I be decanting them? Should I be putting them in my cellar for a while? How should I approach those wines? Well, uh, these wines need a lot of air. They're quite reductive.
2: Uh, they're staying long, very long on the fine lease, uh, three weeks before bottling until they're staying on the fine lease. So decanting is always something I would recommend with these wines, at least one hour before. So That's uh, really helpful, especially with the 2010 vintage, because their the acidity level is even higher than usual. So on this vintage... For sure. And also with uh, the Grunerwetlina, which was in stainless steel, also there, I would recommend decanting the wine. And what, what we also saw, if you keep the wine open, uh, two, three days is no problem.
0: In terms of style, I think a lot of people think of the Kamptal, or they think of the Wachau, or they think of areas of Austria that they might know more. How would you compare where you are to the kinds of Gruner that come out of those places?
2: Where we are, the altitude is a little higher, plus it's a little more north. So we have a total, totally cooler climate than the others. So the style of our wines is totally different. So we are a little higher in acidity. Also, stylistically, we are a little different because our wines are bone dry. They have 1 to maximum 1.5 residual sugar. Uh, we are working on mostly on soil, which is a lot, has a lot of chalk inside which you can also feel in the wine. So stylistically, it's not comparable with these other areas.
0: When we look back, we can really, in a somewhat way that maybe wasn't easy at the time, sort of easily say, here's what your grandfather did, here's what your father did. When we look back on your tenure at the Krahar Family Winery, and what will you have done? I'm very lucky that the generations before
2: always thought about the nature using the right crews, using the right varieties, using the right clones. The selections for the new plantations are taken from our own vineyards. And uh, I will go on doing like that. And uh, I'm very proud that I had the chance to learn from my father and my grandfather at the same time because uh, it's uh, two generations with the same target but with different ways to go to it. And I had the luck to work with the, with both of them nearly 10 years. Uh, I will for sure go on with the family tradition. You know, never change a winning team. So I'll keep on making sweet wines. <laughs> and uh, stylistically, I don't know. Uh, you know, every winemaker has its own little different style. By just working it, even if the idea is the same. At my grandfather's time the style of the wine was for sure slightly different than to my father. And the same since so seven, since I'm making the wine, the style is slightly different too, I'm sure, because every uh, winemaker does it a little different, even if it's the same way of thinking, the same targets, the same thinking of what's the best for the wine. So and my target is for sure to a little larger in the winery. We have a new plantation plant. Uh, We did already two years ago about a hectare. And uh, beginning of next year, we will do two and a half hectares of uh, new plantations. Uh, We bought some plots. And uh, uh, we also had the chance to buy some vineyards with old plantations, with uh, Welsh Riesling and uh, Pinot Gris. So we are planning to uh, build a new cellar beginning of next year because uh, the old cellar got a little too small. Oh, we always have to store two vintages in one cellar because uh, the release date for the BA and for the TBAs is always uh, two years after harvest. And uh, I hope to make the Kracher brand even more popular in the future than it already is.
0: Gerhard Kracher, thank you. Thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the